thank you for being here this morning. I'm really excited to get to teach. Uh, uh, I'm going to be gone in August. I've never done that before. I've never uh, been gone more than two classes because it's just been uh, something I didn't want to be away from. So for the first time in 20 years of teaching here, I will be gone for uh, that week, I mean that month, and we'll be in uh, overseas. So sorry, I will miss you guys. But before I go, a couple of housekeeping matters. I had a a dear friend who connected me with this book, The Apostles' Creed for All God's Children. And it's a children's book on the Apostles' Creed. Now, the Apostles' Creed, you'll recognize immediately if you don't know it. It is... I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Virgin, or by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He'll come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, uh, little c, uh, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, that, that, so most of you can read. Um, I can too on good days. Most of you have Bibles, I do too, but for over a thousand years, most people in a church could not read. And for over a thousand years, most people in the church did not have a Bible. And for over a thousand years, if they did have a Bible, it was in a language that they didn't speak. And the church had a great deal of creative difficulty trying to teach doctrine and faith to people who could not read, did not have a Bible, and if they had one, wouldn't have understood it in the language that it was written in. And so the way the church went about doing that was multifold, but one of them was developing creeds that were easy to memorize so that people would have access. And the Apostles' Creed is one of the earliest creeds in the church. And and what this book does, it's written for children. So it'll say... Phrase by phrase, I believe in God the Father Almighty. And then it's got text next to it that kind of uh, goes into a little more detail, you know, for, for children. Who is God? What is God like? Is God scary or unknown? Jesus called God Father. He depends on God and comes from God. Jesus lives in God forever with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus has made me live with God too. That's why I can call God Father. And so each of these phrases, maker of heaven and earth, where does the world come from? Why am I here? Each of these phrases are explained in a wonderful, really good way. So I've got uh, some grandchildren that I got uh, some books for because I thought this is a great book to read to the grandkids. And I went ahead and I ordered three more. So here's the deal. If you want 
to order one, you can get them off Amazon.com and you can order for people in your family. But some of you may have an acute need for one that you don't have time to order. So after class, I'll put these three uh, down here and uh, you're welcome to take them if you've got that acute need that doesn't give you time to order it. So that's first deal of business. Second deal of business. We got to talk about class. Now, I was going to teach through the Gospels this year until September. Come September, Tim, I can't see you when I stand there with this here. So if you're going to sit there, I got to move that down. (laughs) Got to make sure. I'm not going to have you fall asleep on me and me not know it. Okay, thank you. He moved seats. Starting in September, when I get back, we're going to start the minor prophets out of the Old Testament. So it's going to be really fun because most people don't study those. And so it gives us a chance to study them within their historical context. But prophecies are like, in the Bible, are like um, the ripples from when you throw a stone into a pond. You've got the first ripple. And then the second, and then the third, and then the fourth. And that's the way prophecies are. They have uh, generally an immediate fulfillment, but then they have subsequent fulfillments over time. And it's going to be really interesting, fascinating, educational, and inspirational for us to look at the minor prophets. So I'm excited about that, and uh, uh, I hope that you'll be here uh, once we get that started. So meanwhile, I sent an email out to everybody because I thought this week what we would do is talk about the Gospel of Luke and I would look at what are called, um, their semitisms. It's the, the, the events of Jesus' life are being conducted in Hebrew and Aramaic, maybe a little bit of Greek. But ultimately, those Hebrew sayings and parables and things like that get translated into Greek for Luke's gospel and then translated into English for us. There are a lot of expressions that are used that just don't make sense to us very well unless we look at them in light of their Hebrew. And so I thought that would be a really interesting thing. And I started work on that class and I got about... Halfway through, maybe 60% through, when I decided that I had a problem. Are you familiar with the legal term bait and switch? I sent an email out saying I was going to talk about the Semitisms in Luke, and that was your carrot to come to class today. But it occurred to me as I was putting class together that... We just went through the Gospels and I taught from Matthew and I taught from Mark and I taught from Luke. But that's only three of the four Gospels. Oh, whoops. So I decided today instead I was going to teach a lesson from the Gospel of John just so, you know, if I ever run into him in the next kingdom, I, I would, I would, I'm good. Now, here's the problem. Gospel of John, one Sunday. 
How do you choose to side pick and select which chapter you want to do or which story you want to do? So, Oliver Wilson, and I've been talking about random number generators. And Oliver, I created one. I created a program with a random number generator. And we're just going to do whatever it happens to land on. That's what we're going to teach today. So here it goes. I wonder where it's going to land. Oh, I'm nervous. Oh, whoops. I messed up my random number generator. Let's see here. Uh, I need this one right, y'all. Um, let's see. Dun, 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 dun. Now, why? Okay. Save. Let's go back. So I decided to create a random number generator. And I have absolutely no clue where it's going to land. Let's see what we'll do. Oh, four. Okay, we'll do John chapter four. Now we just need a roadmap and we can get after class. So here's your roadmap. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the story. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to go back through the story and look at the details. And then the third thing we're going to do is have our points for home, okay? So with that, let's get these out of the way. Let's get the Gospel of John up there. We're talking about John chapter 4, and here is the story. Oops, that's details. Go back. We want the story. John chapter 4. We'll do it this way. See, when it's random, you're hardly ready. John chapter 4. Now, this is going to be kind of a long read, so don't go to sleep. If you go to sleep and you start snoring, I want someone to elbow you awake. And I'll skip a few words here and there to make it go a little quicker. Jesus learned the Pharisees heard Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. And he had to pass, uh, so he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was, who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, 
as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, well, you're right in saying I have no husband for you've had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat. He said, I have food to eat you don't know about. They said, who got him food to eat? Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Now, ultimately, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. We've heard for ourselves and we know this is indeed the savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. And that's the story. It's a good story, right? Okay. So now let's look at it in some detail. There's a difference between reading fast and reading slow. When you read slow, you got time to digest what you're reading. You got time to look at little nooks and crannies that are there among the verses. And that's what I want us to do. So let's get the text up and let's start here. Now, Jesus left Judea and he departed again for Galilee. Look at this sentence. And he had to pass through Samaria. Day is the, the word that's translated, it's E-day there because of the form, but it, it, it means it's ne- it was necessary 
He had to do it. He must do it. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, as we're reading slow, if you remember your geography, which I don't expect you to have to do, this was not a test. He didn't technically have to do that because of the terrain. If we put a map up here, he's been down here in Jerusalem. The typical way for a Jew in Jerusalem to go up to Galilee is not to pass through Samaria because the Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews. It was not friendly territory. And they were, the Samaritans were considered unclean and not worth being around, talking to, or engaging. So what most Jews would do that were at least Jewish rabbis and, and, uh, uh, caring about their devotion and purity is they would cross the Jordan River and then on the opposite bank of the Jordan, they'd go up until they got around Samaria. And then they'd cross the Jordan back and go on up into Galilee. That's the typical way that they could go. Now, it took an extra day. Might even take an extra two days, depending upon how fast you walk. But Jesus stayed in Samaria for two unplanned days. So he wasn't in a hurry. So he didn't have somewhere he had to be that required him to take the shortcut. So what is this passage? He had to short, he had to pass through Samaria. The reason Jesus had to pass through Samaria is because he was on mission for God. And there was an important rendezvous to be kept. He had to do it. It was the mission that made it necessary. See this word day, that, that, that necessity, that must word. John uses it frequently and it's generally always in reference, or repeatedly I should say, in reference to Jesus' mission on earth. Let me give you a couple other examples of where it's used. In John 3.14... As, let's make this a little bit bigger. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It's in reference to his crucifixion. It's something he must do. John 9, 4. Uh, Jesus has just healed a man born blind. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. I need to be about the father's business. It, it's something I must do. John 12, 34. The crowd answered him. We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? That it's necessary he be lifted up. John 20 verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. 
See, this must is connected with Jesus's mission. He wasn't down here just, nah, see what happens today. He was on focused mission. Now, if you go back to uh, somewhere around 300 A.D., there was a fella who was uh, born named St. Ephraim, the Syrian. It's about 300 A.D. He died in 373. We're a lot more sure about when he died than when he was born. He was famous because he wrote a bunch of hymns. He was a big famous hymn writer in the early church. So he was like um, Hillsong with good theology. Uh, no, I love Hillsong. They have some great theology, I'm sure, somewhere. And uh, here's, he also did uh, exegesis on scriptures. He said on this passage, Jesus came to the fountain, the well, as a hunter. He threw a grain before one pigeon that he might catch the whole flock. And I really like that. I like the fact that he recognizes Jesus is on the hunt. He had to go through Samaria because that's where the target was. Jesus is on the hunt and he's hunting the Samaritan woman and he's hunting that village to turn him to faith. You go where the prey is when you're hunting. I mean, yes, some people hunt deer from a blind where they've got a feeder that goes off every morning at 5 p.m. and teaches Bambi's mom and dad to come eat at exactly 100 yards where their rifle is scoped. But some people actually go out there and track and hunt. Jesus is a hunter. I like that metaphor there. And I want to tell you, I like that metaphor because God will go anywhere he has to to find the lost. You know the phrase that's in my brain? God is in the saving business. God's not looking to lock people out. God is wanting to figure out any means possible to get everyone into a relationship with him. And he'll go as far as he can go to do that. So he had to go through Samaria. Let's get back to it. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sichar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jacob and Joseph, Old Testament characters from way back in Genesis, um, offspring of Abraham. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob's got a boatload of sons, a dozen. Uh, uh, and, and among them was Joseph. So Jesus, look at this phrase. Whoops. Sorry. Wearied as he was from his journey. Jesus is weary? Jesus is tired? I, uh, uh, Becky uh, and Sarah left early, um, so I had to take them to the airport 
Friday night. They were flying out to go um, to England. And I said, I'll, I'll leave after class. I want to teach Sunday. And so I take them to the airport. They're on like the 8.30 flight. We pull up, and it's announced in our car, the flight's an hour late. Okay, gives them a little more time at the airport. So they get out of the car. We get all the luggage out. We get them inside. I wave. I go home. I've got to get home quick because my party is starting. Uh, Becky's gone. She said, what are you going to do when I'm gone? I said, man, I think everybody's arriving at like seven. I've got to really get back. Um, uh, so I, I go back home and I get a call from Becky at like 930. And I said, well, y'all should be taken off. She says, well, it's another hour delay, which turns into another hour delay, which turns into another hour delay which turns into another hour delay. So at 4.30 in the morning, they canceled the flight and get everybody off the airplane where they've been sitting for the last four or five hours, six hours, seven hours. So I get to go pick Becky up at and Sarah at 5 in the morning, 5.30, which worked out well because we were the first in line at Chick-fil-A, which opens at 6 for breakfast. But I bring them home, and they're rebooked to go out at 4 o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday, so I get to drive them back to the airport. I was weary in the journey, and I haven't even left yet. Jesus is weary from the journey. That is so human. We often talk about the divine one. We often talk about Jesus as the son of God. And that's right and proper and good. We should. But remember those Byzantine paintings of Jesus? Always have him in two colored robes. The blue is an expression of his divinity because it's a color of the heavens. But the red is a reflection of his humanity. It's the color of blood. The gold sash, that's just a a sash. That's not his clothing. That's a remnant from the Roman Empire that says he's Caesar. He's the ruler. When we had the chapel painted, Richard McCluskey, the painter, wanted to paint a gold trim around the bottom of Jesus' garment, a, a ribbon of gold like this. From that area down, a ribbon of gold. And he would do these miniatures before he'd paint up on the ceiling. And I'd tweak the miniatures. And I said, you can't do that because Jesus has two natures. He's fully human, but he's fully divine. So two colored robes. And he said, but it would look better. And I said, well, I understand it would look better, but that's heresy. And we're going to go ahead and just stick with who Jesus, you know, let's do it right. And he says, you don't understand. He says, it it would look so much better. And I said, I understand, Richard, but that's heresy. So he gets up there and paints. I leave for six weeks to go to trial. I come back six weeks later. He's in a whole different part of the chapel painting. But I look up and he's painted that gold all the way around the bottom of the garment. I said, Richard, buddy, come here. We talked about this, remember? Yeah. I said, you did it anyway. He said, well, I didn't think you'd notice. (laughs) Then he says, and if you did, 
I thought you would finally agree with me. It looks better. And I said, I did notice. And I don't care if it looks better. Jesus has two natures. He's fully God, but he's also fully human. So get back up there and repaint and thin no more. Um, Richard left a little dark line, so I would always remember that from there down it would look better if it was gold. But he did repaint. Um, Jesus is wearied from his journey. It was the sixth hour. Now that's interesting. The sixth hour, the Jewish day started at six a, or the morning day started at six a.m. So that means it was uh, about noon. And Jesus is already weary from the journey. We don't know how early he started. We don't know how crazy his day was. We don't know if he had to make three airport deliveries within twenty-four hours. We don't know if he was on the phone trying to figure out if the airplane would ever take off. We don't know any of that. But I will tell you this. If you are reading this yourself, you're going to wonder. If you were just reading this back at the day of Jesus, the day John of John wrote it. You're going to be wondering about this comment. Um, somebody's phone's ringing. If it's my mom, tell her I'll be there in a minute. Mom's over there. I knew it wasn't her. Um, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, it's noon. Women don't draw water at noon. You draw water in the morning or in the evening, not in the heat of the day. So it's going to make somebody wonder why it is a woman is drawing water at noon. Maybe there's been a problem at the house. Or maybe there's a reason she's not going when all the other women go. Maybe there's some reason she doesn't want to be with everybody. Maybe she doesn't fit in. Maybe fill in the blank. John doesn't tell us, but we know that something unusual is happening. And a lot of people conjecture, oh, it's because she's, you know, an outcast. I don't think that's true because the whole town believes in Jesus, not the whole town, but a bunch of them off of her testimony. She had to wield some measure of influence. I don't think John tells us because it's not part of the story. What is part of the story is this divine appointment. Jesus had to go and Jesus was weary and Jesus got there right at the same time. She's getting there. Because God will not only orchestrate his own intervention in our lives, but he'll orchestrate our lives to enable that intervention. If you hear the call of God in your life, it's not made up in your brain. It's God orchestrating events to speak to you. All right, but this is a woman. And we know from this class, if nothing else, strike one. That's a a, a negative back in that day. She's a woman 
from Samaria. So to a Jewish rabbi, that is strike two. So the Samaritan woman says to Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John, you see the the quotation marks in here? That's because the translators are saying that this is probably John including this information for us, for his readers, that, that her quote, what she said, ends there. She's not saying, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's a gimme. She knows that and Jesus knows that. John's inserting that to the reader. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So Jesus answers her, says, if you knew the gift of God and you knew who it was saying to you, give me a drink, you'd have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now she's got well water. Living water was a phrase for a running stream. It's fresher water. I mean, do you really know what anybody's thrown down that well? Do you really know how many birds flew down there looking to get their drink and do their bird bath stuff and all that goes with birds flying down there? But running water, living water, that's that's really good stuff. So living water means moving water. But Jesus is using it here as a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. And it's an appropriate metaphor for the Holy Spirit because it's also a metaphor for God in the Old Testament. Let me give you some Old Testament stuff with God. Just a couple of passages real quick, recognizing that I'm taking a little longer than I should. Um, Jeremiah 2.13. In Jeremiah 2.13 we read, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me... The fountain of living water. And instead they've hewn out cisterns that can hold no water. Broken cisterns. You know, and, and, and Jeremiah uses that again in 1713 where he talks uh, in the voice of God. Uh, speaks on behalf of God. And says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they've forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. And so living water is a a good description of God. He's always on the move. He's that water supply that's necessary for life. And a good description of the Holy Spirit. So the woman may not be catching the metaphor yet, but she likes the idea of living water. Sir... You don't have anything to draw water with. This well's deep. Where are you going to get running water? This isn't even running water. And then she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well. He drank from this well. It's got Jacob backwash. As did his sons and his livestock. Now, if you get a dictionary out and you look up the word irony, you will find it says something along the lines of a literary technique originally used in Greek tragedy by which the full significance of a character's words or actions are clear to the audience or reader 
although unknown to the character. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Duh. Is Jesus greater than Jacob? (laughs) Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I'll give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, there's an interesting Greek play here on some words that you need to know. Because it really fits in with the story. This word spring, pege, will become in him a spring of water. It's a different word than's been used for the well. That's why the translators translate this spring instead of well. See, Jacob's well is a free air, and that's a hand-dug well. That's human effort. But the word for spring, pege, is one that's natural. It's God's creation, if you will. You have a natural spring. You have a hand-dug well. The well represents a lot of human effort. The spring is God's free gift. And Jesus says, this is going to be a spring welling up in you. This isn't based on your effort. It's not based on what you're doing. See, God's not taking you and letting you be the best you. That sounds good. But God's recreating you to be something better than you can be on your own. God is not simply giving you vitamins. God's not the the GNC store. God is looking to change who you are by giving you a new life. See, this is a spring of water that springs up to eternal life. And you can't miss a comparison here because I, my random number generator came to John chapter 4. Because John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, is right on the heels of John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Where Jesus said, unless you're born again, or born from above... And God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And Nicodemus came at night. And Jesus has had this long dialogue and work with Nicodemus. And then Jesus sets out. And by noon the next day he's tired. And he's got in the daylight his encounter with this Samaritan woman. And he's making it real clear to her in her language as opposed to the language for Nicodemus, the Pharisee. He's making it real clear to her in her language that he's got this gift that's eternal. And so the woman says to him, sir, give me the water so I won't be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And finally, he's got a nibble. I'm not saying she's on the hook. Hadn't caught her yet, but he's got a nibble. 
Jesus says, go get your husband. Y'all come here. This needs to be a family project. She says, um, I have no husband. Uk echo Andre. This is the shortest possible way to say I have no husband in Greek. Three words. Terse, short, I don't want to talk about it. Just cut that off. That's it. No more. And then Jesus says, you're right in saying, I have no husband. And kaboom. Strike one, woman. Strike two, Samaria. Sexual immorality. Swing and a miss. Strike three. She's out. If she was playing baseball. But she's being courted by the king of kings for something far greater than an earthly baseball game. Jesus says, you've had five husbands by my count. (laughs) In fact, if you're reading it in the Greek, the first word that Jesus says is pente, five. (laughs) It's not like you've had five husbands. It's like five husbands you've had. And now the one you're with ain't your husband. And this woman says, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Now that's called a knack for the obvious. And she says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say Jerusalem's where people ought to worship. Now that's called change the subject. Jesus Jesus says, I'll go down that rabbit trail with you, but I'm bringing you right back because all roads lead to me. So he says, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour's coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Woman, believe me. Now here's the key. Jesus, uh, and he said to her, Jesus said to her, in the Greek, the yellow is the yellow. So Jesus starts his sentence with believe me. And that word believe, pistuo, the verb, is have faith. John, who's just been through all of the believe, believe, believe with the Nicodemus story. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish. Those that don't believe in him, verse 33, on them the wrath of God remains. On the heels of those believe, believe, believe passages... Now Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman and he says, believe me. Now it doesn't have the, the Greek believe in me. Um, it would take the Greek ace and a different case for moi. But, but it's, it's not without effect when you're reading it in the Greek. Believe, trust, have faith me, woman. Because the hour's coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. 
You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. And, and the, the you and the we are, are in emphatic positions. He's underlining them. He's red inking them. He's bold facing them. You worship, that's you plural. Y'all worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. And that's in contrast. So Samaritans, if you put the Old Testament up here, these are Old Testament scrolls, if you will. You've got law, you've got history, poetry, major prophets, minor prophets. That's the way we group them. The Jews grouped them as either the law and the prophets or about the time of Jesus. They were grouping them into three sometimes, the law and the prophets and the other writings. But it's the same set of books. The Samaritans only believed in the law, the first five books of Moses. They didn't believe the rest of it was scripture. Now, we do. Jesus did. Paul wrote that all scripture is inspired by God. He's talking about the whole Old Testament. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God, the woman of God would be complete, equipped for every good work. Talking about the whole breadth of scripture. But Paul, but, but Jesus says, you worship what you don't know. You don't even have the whole panoply of scripture in front of you. We understand a lot more, but here's the key. The hour's coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Do you realize what we can read over if we don't read slowly? The Father is seeking. God seeks you out. He seeks you to worship Him. He's calling on you. He's going out of his way to find you. He's setting up divine appointments. He's speaking into your heart. God is seeking those who would worship him in spirit and truth. Jesus continued, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Now the woman says... I know that the Messiah is coming. And and if, if I ever did my Bible translation, I would not put this in parentheses. I would put this in brackets. I think this is John's insert. He who is called the Christ. Because all he's done is translate Messiah into Greek. Christ for his Greek readers. I know that Messiah means anointed one. I know the anointed one is coming. The one who is called anointed one. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Tough translation. Because I am is all together in the Greek. It's ego a me, which is what God said to Moses was his name. Moses said, well, I, I need to tell him your name. Ego me is one of the phrases that's translated, I am. Jesus said, I am. I'm that God speaking to you. I'm the Messiah. I'm not just fully human. 
get me a drink. I'm fully divine. Let's go back to my buddy, St. Ephraim the Syrian. That's what he said here. First, she caught sight of a thirsty man. Then, a Jew. Then, a rabbi. Then, a prophet. And finally, a messiah. So, those are the details. My video thought for tomorrow, I think, will pick up where this story lets off. So, tune into that. Uh, um, but I, I really love this story. And I want to tell you why, and I'll do that in the points for home. Number one. I want to hear God. God's interest, if you were here for the sermon I preached last Sunday, and thanks again, Pastor Jarrett, for giving me that honor and privilege. It's so important that we understand that God's salvation for us is not just something that happens in heaven, you know, at the end of this life or into this world. That Greek verb sozo, which is translated salvation, is talking about the here and now as well. And all of the ravages and consequences of sin that God saves us from in this life. God's constantly at work trying to heal and to save from the ravages of sin. And and I'm not today what I will be, but I'm better today than I was. Hear me? I'm not today what I will be, but I'm closer today than I was because God's at work trying to save me. I need to hear him. The world will try to shout and drown out the voice of God. I need to hear him. TV will try to shout and drown out the voice of God. I need to hear him. The internet will try to shout out and drown the voice of God. I need to hear him. Work will try to shout out and drown the voice of God. I need to hear him. It's one reason we come to class, but it's one reason we do video thoughts for the day. It's one reason we do quiet time each day. It's one reason we pray each day. It's one reason we study each day. I need to hear God and not just hear him. I need to focus on him. I need to dedicate brain cells, part of worshiping in spirit and in truth is focusing on the one we're listening to. To worship means to give him value. I was listening to, uh, uh, David Cape sent me a link this morning um, to a, um, a, a Catholic uh, apologist, theologian fellow that I think we're going to try and get at the library at some time. It was really fascinating because he was talking about all of the atheist arguments about uh, why there's no God. And he says, you know, anytime I, I want to get in dialogue with an atheist, I always say, well, you go first. And he said, then they give me all the reasons that there can't be a God. And he said, my general reaction is, well, I agree with you. I agree with everything you've said. That's the way he said it. I don't think there's that kind of God either. And he said, what the atheists do as a favor. They destroy idols. Now you may not be following me on this. 
and it's worthy of more time than I've got. But what I'm driving at is, if, if we will hear God and focus on God, we can get rid of the idols in our lives, including our fake religion. And we can find truth and purity that comes from the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit, in our lives. And that's, that's what we need to be doing. That's what we need to be about. We need to be about more than just checking a box off. We need to be about hearing God, focusing on God, and letting him touch us. Letting him change us. Letting him transform us. Letting him know that we not just believe him, we believe in him. We not just trust him, we trust in him. We will make choices in this life based upon our faith, not based upon our sight. We will make choices in this life that may seem counterintuitive to our self-defense preservation. We will make choices in this life that may seem counterintuitive to our bank account. We will make choices in this life that are based upon hearing the word of God and focusing on him and trusting him. And he will transform not just us, but the world around us. Because that's what he's intent on doing and he's looking for you. He's seeking you. He's seeking me. You watch this on the internet. He's seeking you. You don't know what to do about it? Call, text, email. We're very available. All right. It's 1030. We got to go to church. Let me pray with you and bless you. And then uh, I'll see you soon. God willing. I'll send you like video clips. I'll keep doing video thoughts for the day. Father, in the name of Jesus, we want to hear you. We want to see you. We want to follow you. We want to focus on you. We want to embrace you. We want to be touched by you. We want to be your children who are being transformed by the power of your spirit. To your glory and to your praise and for the good of your kingdom. That is our prayer. In Jesus we say amen.